0: Welcome back to the Gutsiest Brands Podcast, a show built around understanding the DNA of gutsy brands by talking to the world's most innovative brand leaders. I'm your host, Emily Eichelberger. Here at Gut Check, we've identified four primary criteria that help us measure a gutsy brand. We feature brands that are empathetic, pioneering, bold, and what we call the power of and, those that see opportunity where others see trade-off. When we find a brand leader that we think embodies gutsiness, we bring them to the show to explore what makes them so darn successful, what drives them every day, and to get their perspective on other brands that wear the badge of gutsy honor. In today's episode, Gut Check CRO Jess Gatticki, a former leader at Nielsen and extreme 49ers fan, chats with Kristen Luck, the current president of SMR, a member organization for market, social and opinion research the founder and managing partner of Scalehouse, a management consulting firm dedicated to growing, optimizing, defending, and perpetuating enterprise value for firms in the market research and marketing technology vertical. She has started, scaled, and sold three successful market research and marketing technology firms and currently serves on the board of directors for several industry-leading firms. She's a founder focused on helping fellow founders and executive team members scale and monetize their businesses. And I'll just say it, she's a total rock star. And she'd have to be because she has her very own Wikipedia page, hashtag goals. We're excited to dig in to understand what makes Kristen tick, what brands she thinks are gutsy, the advice she has for other entrepreneurs, and uncover her family's darkest secret. Grab your favorite beverage and nestle in for another episode of the Gutsiest Brands podcast.
1: Well, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us on the Gutsiest Brands podcast. Um, I personally admire you so much professionally. So this is just a treat to be able to have a conversation with you today. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Well, I'm really excited to hear your perspective because you have a really fascinating and diverse background. And I think you can uh, give us some really interesting perspective and perhaps a very different perspective than some of our brand colleagues on what it takes to be a gutsy brand and to live that every day. So before we get into that, though, I'd love to have you tell us about your incredibly diverse and fascinating background.
2: Yeah, I'm kind of the the cat with 13 lives at this point, I feel like. <laughs> every, you know, every six or seven, eight years, I feel like I kind of reinvent myself in some ways. So I started out on the full service supplier side of the, of the business. Uh, that's where my, my career started. And actually, even before that, I, part of how I worked my way through, through college to through university was by working at a social science research firm. So that's kind of where I got my first taste of research. And then straight out of uh, university, I, I ended up moving to Los Angeles. I got a job at LRW, which is material now. Uh, not really knowing anything about market research and thinking it was really similar to social science research. So I went from working on one, you know, one or two projects for like a year and a half, two years to working on like 15 projects in a week and a half. Yep, <laughs> um, <yep. laughs> those days. Very. Right? Yes, exactly. Uh, and then I got, I just got really, uh, just really interested and fascinated with the more of the tech side of the business. And I mean, this was back in the late nineties when the, you know, research was was first sort of being talked about going online and I really wanted to be a part of that. And so I was really fortunate to, to make my way to, to AC Nielsen and, and work with them on building one of the first, you know, research platforms and specifically for the entertainment industry, which is where the bulk of my experience was at, at that point. Uh, and then, of course, I realized pretty quickly that Nielsen, although a great company, uh, is not the greatest place to build a startup or early stage technology, and so uh, another woman at the at the firm, she and I left and started OTX, which was one of the the you know the, one of the first kind of big online research platforms. So I think in 2002 and 2003 we were actually the fastest growing research company in the world. I mean we really just hit that dot com boom perfectly. So uh, so yeah, so I I spent you know probably the next you know. 15 years on the tech side of the business until I exited my last firm, Decipher, and uh, after that, I, I really, just sort of figured out that it really wasn't the starting of companies that I loved so much. It was really the scaling that I loved, and so, and all the problems and issues that go along with that. And so I thought if I could spend my days helping other founders. Uh, scale and grow their businesses and avoid a lot of the really painful, stupid mistakes I made along the way that that would be the most fun that I could have. Uh, And so, yeah, so I started scale house and then a couple years ago I, I got my investment banking license which was a pretty heavy lift having, you know, kind of barely graduated university and not having any kind of background in business finance rather than running my own company so uh, so now I'm a licensed investment banker as well, which is kind of an odd, I think, pivot for somebody who comes out
1: of a research background. <laughs> it's a really interesting and meaningful pivot, I would I would say. So, and tell us about your involvement with SMR as well.
2: Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, so I'm the president of SMR now. I've been on the board. This will be my ninth year. Uh, I got connected with SMR back when I was running OTX. So, Uh, you know, quite a a while ago, it would have been 2002, maybe 2003, when I attended my first SMR event, and I became a member shortly thereafter. SMR, I would say, of any association or group that I've been involved in has been the most pivotal in terms of my career, because it really allowed me to meet people from all over the world, researchers from all all over the world. Uh, It's an incredible resource. Uh, I think particularly for people in the US where we have a tendency to be more insular in terms of how we conduct research and we kind of think, oh, well, we're the biggest market. And so of course we have all the answers here and we're awesome, go USA. Uh, But the truth of the matter is like, there's an incredible amount that you can learn from how people are doing work in emerging markets or how they're uh, doing work in conflict markets or uh, what new technologies are coming out of the Nordics or some of these other high growth areas of the world. and so for me that's you know my involvement with smr has been some of the, the most rewarding of of my career because i i just really i wouldn't have the career that i have today which is a pretty global one i mean the bulk of my business is with you know european and eight companies in asia pacific so uh, i i just wouldn't i wouldn't be anywhere
1: near where i am today without my involvement in smr yeah well thank you for taking that leadership role because we learn a lot from that organization and from you.
2: Yeah. Just to clarify, because I get asked this a lot, it is an unpaid position. (laughs) So I've had a few people like, wow, I I didn't realize like you were going to stop consulting and, you know, work on SMR. And I was like, I know it probably seems like I love work on it full time, but it's an unpaid position still running my consulting practice. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Well, and women in
1: research as well is another area that you spend a lot of your time
2: I do. I well, I'm really fortunate now because we have a great managing director Michelle Andre, um and then Jessica Sage is our marketing director and so I'm you know, I'm able to pass off a lot of the day-to-day management of that organization now to them, which is fantastic because we have over 12,000 women in the community wow. now globally. It's gotten really big. It's it's one of those things that I just started out as a passion project and you see a need for it and uh yeah, it's just it's just exploded, I think we've been really fortunate to have a board and a a ton of volunteers that have really taken up the cause and it's made, uh,
1: it's made the growth of of wire possible globally. Well, we'll come back to that because there's a lot of components in that story that I think link to the, the DNA and the the characteristics of gutsiness and gutsy brands. So let's start with a little bit more about you personally. So what was your very first job? And I mean, truly like the first one that you got money for and what lessons did you learn that stick with you today?
2: So my first like formal job, I would say, I think I must've been 18 or 19. My My father didn't want me to work when I was in high school because he really wanted me to focus on, on my academics. And it was really important to him because I was the first one in my family to go to to college. So I didn't, I didn't work until I graduated high school. The first job I got was working at a convenience store called Dairy Mart in Oregon. Uh, And I got fired. (laughs) So (laughs) It's the only time I've ever gotten fired from a job. And uh, yeah, I got fired because you'll love this. I got fired because I couldn't for whatever reason, there was something glitchy with the door to the convenience store. And when you closed it at night, you had to set the alarm, but the alarm would only set if the door was closed in a particular way. And I'd worked a really long shift one night and I um, I really, you know, tried to close the door the right way. It wouldn't close, 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 the alarm wouldn't set, alarm wouldn't set. Finally, I got it closed. I set the alarm uh, and uh, as I was driving off, I could hear the alarm going off. And I just remember thinking like, I'm not going back. I can't. I can't do it again. Anyway, I got fired the next day. <laughs> so <laughs> the, good, the learning experience. Set the alarm, everyone. Don't drive away if you hear it going off.
1: <laughs> Stay there until the job is done. Okay. Well. Stay there until the job is done. It was a good.
2: It was a good lesson for me. But it is funny that, was, of course, like the the easiest job by far that I've ever had, and the one that I absolutely failed at. <laughs>
1: I think it's good to get that first firing out of the way early, though, right, so it was I did a big deal, yeah, yeah, I knocked it out of the park, yeah, so now let's turn to some of the brands and the companies that you've been involved with. Um, think about one of the first startups that you were really engaged with. What was meaningful about that brand's journey and what drew you to it?
2: Uh, well, I mean, obviously the first startup I was involved with was my own and that was a really, you know, it was a very, very tough road because we had started a, an entertainment online research company at a time where, where online was still very suspect and particularly in the entertainment community. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we were really grinding to get people to adopt the platform and probably the, you know, the, the smartest thing that we did is we got Dan Rosen, who at that time was the head of research for Warner Brothers, on board, like really believing in the technology and the platform. And uh, he, you know, he basically let us test every single trailer and movie spot that he had for an entire year, so that we were able to build a normative database uh, and then go out and test with other inner entertainment companies. But he, you know, he went a lot further than that. He also went out and really evangelized what we were doing and. Supported it and helped helped us at speaking gigs. And you know he was a real advocate for us, at, you know a real brand evangelist. And I don't think that the company would have scaled the way that it did without him because we were really getting attacked from all sides. you know at the time, Nrg was, which is now Nielsen Energy, ironically, uh, got, you know, they were really attacking us. and Ted sent a letter to every studio head and said, Online basically is bullshit, and the state is trash, and don't go down this route. And you know, and that's hard. That's hard when you're early stage and you're trying to gain confidence, trust, and particularly among studio execs, which are some of the most nervous folks in the world because you know they they want to do things. Where they're going to retain their job? Those are high-value jobs, and so it's it's tough to get people like Dan to go out on a limb. And so because of that, I, I I talk about Dan a lot. He knows I'm eternally grateful for the support that he gave us in those early days.
1: It's interesting too, thinking about you're the new kid on the block, right? And there's a big player in the space that's kind of beating you up and trying to shoot down the the core part of your asset, which is bringing it online. So. What are some of the other ways that you were able to develop credibility outside of the, um, you know, evangelical nature of, of Dan? Well, I think it was a, I think we were really focused on doing good work.
2: And it, I think for entertainment clients, the the very crux of, of what they are looking for is, is speed and efficiency and timeliness. And, and then so we just never missed a deadline, even if it was killing me. I mean, I worked some very extremely long hours at that company. I've definitely slept at the office a few times. My first marriage dissolved because of that company. I've gotten occasional questions about why I never, why I'm not married and I don't have kids. And I was like, well, oh, I just really, I always just love my companies the most, to be honest with you. And that sounds horrible. My, you know, God bless my ex-husbands They're, you know, at least one of them is great. Um, you know, I just never loved anything as much as, as my work. I just was really passionate about it. Just really mm-hmm. passionate about it. And and I think, you know, when you start a company, it's not, it's no small lift. And there's also a ton of people who are depending on you. I had a big staff that were depending on me. And I took that very, very seriously. I think it takes a lot of grit to, to work through that. And I think a lot of people don't see all the late nights and all the times that you cried yourself to sleep and all the failures. All they see is the LinkedIn profile that was like, oh, and she sold this to a private equity firm and people get excited by that. And it's like, oh, well, you didn't see the four or five ruling years that I had before that where all my friends were going out at night or on the weekends and I was working the whole
1: time. Yeah. You were saying to make sure that the door was closed and the alarm was set, right? That was your job. Then. That is correct. <laughs> I admire that, that grit and it does go sometimes unnoticed. So we should notice it and it's not horrible. It's authentic to you. That's your truth. And I, I respect that a lot. So one of the aspects that we talk about when we think about founders and brands that are gutsy is having a real deep empathy for the people you serve. And I was at TMRE in Nashville, where you led a panel with Jess from Mars, and she made such a great statement. She said, you know, empathy is noise without results. I got kind of sick of people just saying, oh, we need more empathy here and there. How is that actually going to deliver results? So can you talk to us about a company or a brand or a founder that you think really shows the best of what empathy means and, and why that matters?
2: I think, I think there's a, a couple of brands that I've worked with. One, one is Hum Kombucha. And, you know, for folks that maybe aren't on the West coast of the States or in a major, major market, you know, kombucha is like a fermented, it sounds horrible. It's a fermented tea, but it's delicious. And I, I just, I love kombucha. It's a, you know, it's a category that I'm passionate about. And I got the opportunity to work um, with Hum Kombucha, which was kind of an early stage kombucha brand that was trying to unseat some of the big players. And the way that they were trying to un- unseat them was by going mainstream. So rather than selling in Whole Foods and uh, you know natural grocers and all these you know kind of typical hippy dippy joints that you think of when you think of kombucha, their mission was really like, how do we get this into 7-Eleven? Because the truth of the matter is that, you know, we have an obesity and sugar epidemic in this country. And, you know, I think their, their mission, their ethos was like, how do, we, how do we bring kombucha to the masses so that people have a healthier alternative? Uh, and that, you know, rather than going into a convenience store and having only soda to choose from our super sugary drinks, how do we give them a healthier alternative at a price point that is not breathtaking? Which a lot of kombucha is. I mean, I bought kombucha in the airport that was like eleven. I mean, I remember buying it. And I was like, what? I just paid eleven dollars for this bottle of kombucha. That's crazy, you know. So of course, it's like, if you you know, if you're a, a, a an average grocery shopper, like you're not going to pay eleven dollars for a bottle of anything. So it is. It was about how are we going to get this brand into Costco and Target and and some of these bigger mass merchants where people have an opportunity to try it and that it's not this scary you know product that maybe you met somebody at a music festival and they had some old sweaty jug of it and offered you a drink which is how I tried
1: kombucha for the first time which is not not recommended I would say right so that's a big job then to educate a a new market on a product that they might not be aware of so how do you how does hum and how do they think about how to do that effectively
2: Yeah, well, they took a really different approach with their advertising. I I mean, I was fortunate. I've worked with them, I think around two and a half years as their advisory CMO until we hired in a a more senior marketing team. Uh, But one of the things that we did realize was that we we were going to have to do some category education. And that's tough when you're a small and emerging brand and you've got these big brands like GTs that have been in the marketplace for a while. But the truth of the matter is that we weren't we weren't trying to speak to the people that buy GTs. We were trying to speak to the people that buy Coca-Cola and Pepsi and, you know, monster energy drink. Like that's who we want to talk to. Uh, and so, yeah, so there, there was some category education for sure that we had to invest in. And, and it is one of those things like where you want to educate people, but you don't want to educate them to the point where they don't want to drink. it. <laughs> so, you know, we didn't, we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about like, Ooh, here's like, there's a mother in it. You know. <laughs> turns into this big ball of goo that sits down in the, you know, we, we didn't, we really didn't talk about that. But, uh, but I do think there was a component where we were doing a lot of more guerrilla and uh, on-site marketing at mass, at mass merchants, like, like, you know, going out to a target in Florida and giving out samples there, or, you know, a lot of, a lot of things to help people understand that, yeah, maybe you've never heard of this before, but it's actually a healthier drink. And here's what, here's what kombucha is. And it's not just for rich people who can afford $11 bottle.
1: So it sounds like in that experience as well, it was a lot of, you, you tr- use the term gorilla, but like boots on the ground, we're going to go into the stores. We're going to tell the story. Is that, is that true? And how important is it for, you know, startup brands, for their leaders to really own the brand and be the evangelist of the brand. How important is that? Uh, I,
0: think
2: it's, I think it's important. I don't think that all founders and CEOs want to be the evangelist for the, for the brand. They don't, personality-wise, it's not a fit for them. And so I always tell people, figure, you know, figure out how you can evangelize the brand in your own way. For me, like I'm very comfortable with public speaking and going out and talking about it. And certainly the founders of Hummer as well, you know, very charismatic very enthusiastic about the brand, really happy to go out and talk to people. Some some folks aren't. And so that that's why it also becomes important. Like if, you, if you're not one of those founders, then pick a business partner or hire somebody internally who is that person who can really serve as the face of the company. You don't have to have that, but gosh, it makes marketing so much easier and and a lot less expensive. I mean, you know, if I think about my, you know, my last company before I started Scalehouse, you know, when I think about decipher, one of the reasons why we were able to scale like we did without a huge marketing spend was because i I was out speaking and traveling and doing you know doing conferences and meeting with clients and writing and blogging and doing all the things that most people have to pay someone to do. Like that was really my function as a as a partner. And so, we were able to get away with that for, for less expense. But it also suited me as an individual and I really enjoyed it. And that's the key to it. There are founders who, and particularly you know, in the tech side of the business who are technologists and you, you wouldn't even want them to get up on stage. Like that would be the worst thing for the brand. So you've got to figure out what, what your strengths are and really play to those. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's really important. Another aspect that we think about when it relates to gutsy brands is the notion of standing behind a bold idea, even if it's not popular at the time, or you know, it, it, you're going out on a limb. Where have you seen leaders or brands that have really personified that? Evelyn, Evelyn
2: and Bobby is a good example. So Evelyn and Bobby is a is a direct-to-consumer bra company, and you know if if you're a man listening to this and you don't wear a bra, then you won't understand how fundamentally uncomfortable and miserable these things are. And so the founder Bree McKean was really on a mission to kind of reinvent how bras were made and to do it from a woman's point of view. I think a lot of people are surprised to hear that within maybe the last couple of years is only when women actually started designing and manufacturing bras. All the previous bras have been manufactured by men. And so, yeah, lots of bras are really cute and sexy and they look amazing, but they're absolute misery to wear on a day-to-day basis. And so Free was a bit fuller figured and large busted and and bras are particularly uncomfortable for large breasted women, which I think a lot of people don't know as well. And so she was really on a mission to redesign bras and kind of take over the the industry in, in a new way. And and she went through a ton of hurdles to try to get this. She was one—I think she was the first woman to actually get a bra patent in this country. Uh, and and it was a really unusual bra that she had manufactured. But she also had a lot of challenges in terms of manufacturing it. Every every everything from getting a manufacturer to take it on in terms of actually making it and even designing it. You know, she ended up hiring a, a bra designer that came out of Victoria's Secret, thinking, "Oh, here's somebody that really wants to do something different." and knows how to design bras, but then ended up getting a designer who really just wanted to design another Victoria's Secret bra, which was not the vision of the company. And so I think as with any founder, she's had, she had a lot of ups and downs before she came up with her latest prototype, which she ended up taking out on QBC and sold out within five minutes. That shows there's some demand for this product. A hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, she'd been doing direct to consumer, but direct to consumer, you know, it's a heavy advertising lift and she could only scale so much. And somebody was like, you know, you should try QVC. And she was like, Ugh, yeah, QVC, you know, a lot of us, I think, turn up our noses at it, but she went through the training and got, you know, got on, on the stage there. And yeah, she had an amazing, amazing experience there. And, you know, now she's also looking at how she takes her, her brand into retailers like Nordstrom and some of these other big uh, you know, big outlets where her
1: her brand can have more visibility. I love so many things about that story. But one thing that strikes me is you wouldn't think of the bra market as a place that's right for innovation, right? It's been around for hundreds of years. And so I love the thinking, and I think it ties back to empathy as well, that she had personally an, a need for a different type of solution. And to have the the guts and the fortitude to be able to Um, create that solution for people. I mean, she's changing lives really for people that that are, you know, experiencing um, that, that misery and now there's solutions. So there's a lot of really cool components to that story. I'd love to meet her.
2: I think too, it's a, it is a testament to how things are changing in the startup world. And this kind of relates also back to the importance of having women, not just in research and in advertising, because right now, you know, if you look at the advertising world, I think like less than three percent of creative directors are women. And yet women make 85% plus of all purchase decisions. So you know that's a that's an issue. But then also female founders have traditionally been underfunded and and still are. And so when you think of you know when you say like oh yeah most people wouldn't think of that category as right for innovation. Yeah, because most of the people that are you know holding the purse strings Who are responsible for which startups get funded, don't wear bras. You know, it also takes me back to to another company that I advised that's run by my friend Sally Christensen. It's a it's a women's workwear brand called Argent that I'm super passionate about. And the one of the, you know, it's workwear for women that is designed by women for women and and it's got lots of pockets and it's super practical and it looks great. And I literally like, I have a jumpsuit from her that I can literally like crush up into a ball in my suitcase and throw in there. And then I take it out and it's like perfect, ready to roll when I get somewhere. But I I remember her telling me a story about how she went out when she was looking for her first round of funding. She was going from BC to BC to BC. And these guys were like, you know, like women don't care about pockets. Uh, Yeah, we do, dude. We just can't get them. And so I think we need more women in leadership positions, more women in startups and more women, particularly on the money side of the business in private equity and investment banking and,
1: um, and venture capital. So you mentioned part of what draws you to companies that are in that growth stage and trying to scale is that you've learned from your many dumb mistakes over the years and that you like to. it sounds like go help other people avoid or solve those, those issues. What are some of those dumb mistakes that you can share?
2: Oh boy. That I've made or that I've seen other people make, <laughs>
1: <laughs> both are of interest. Oh,
2: oh gosh, so many dumb mistakes. I think that you know there's overspending, there's underspending, uh, there's not understanding what all the levers are that drive growth and when those are supposed to use, and that some of the things that you do in the early stages when you're ramping up are not good strategies for what you do in the later stages. I think that the right team is super imperative, and again the team that's great at launching a business oftentimes is not a team that can scale it. And some of your you know most faithful, most loyal employees that you had from the beginning will actively fight you on, on scaling. They just don't want it to happen because it does fundamentally change their access to you and, and their role in the company. and that's very, very hard for a lot of people to, to take. Not understanding your product market fit is a big one. Uh, not understanding what makes you special and different and being able to communicate that. Uh, And I think the number one obstacle for a lot of firms, ironically, in market research, is that market research firms are literally the worst at both marketing and research on their own brands. I've never seen like it. I I mean, they just, uh, whether you're in a technology or services company, people do not want to spend any money on that. It's fascinating. You know, if you ask a market research CEO, to conduct market research on their own brand, they'll act like you've got a foot right growing out of the middle of your head. Like they are not gonna spend a dime on it. Uh, and likewise, I would say, you know, pretty much every firm that I've consulted with over the last five, six years that I've had my practice have grossly underinvested in marketing or have done none at all. And I think that there's this misnomer that anyone can do marketing. And that's not the case. You know, marketing is kind of like the redheaded stepchild of a business. It's like, oh, whoever is available, put them in marketing. You know, like, oh, my sister's, you know, my niece is. She loves marketing. She's so creative and she loves design and like sketching. Like, let's put her into. She's ahead of marketing now, and it's, God, it just kills me because, you know, this I always say. It's not like not your mama's marketing anymore. Like, it's highly technical, very metrics-driven. I once had a. I once had a CMO tell me, you know, eh, I'm not a numbers person. Well, you know what? You're not in the right job then anymore because this isn't just about branding uh, and and brand awareness. It's also about performance marketing and how you're developing leads. And I it's it's interesting too because I think there's a lot of debate about what's a sales function versus what's a marketing function. And to me, like sales and marketing are in they're just linked. They, they should not be two separate functions at, at a company. They should you know, they should, they should be working so closely together. I mean, marketing's whole role is to make sales easier. And when you separate those two functions and you kind of pit those two teams against each other, I mean, it's just like the worst thing that you could do in terms of of growing your business. So,
1: yeah. yeah we realized that at Gut Check this year or last year, and we brought those two divisions together. I'm lucky now to lead both. And it's, it's they're hand in hand. They speak to each other. They should help each other. And when they're not in sync, uh, you know, can't do great things. And I've heard you also say that it's sales, marketing, and business intelligence that should all be within the same function. And because yeah. it's important to have those metrics and make sure that you are looking at the right things. I I also heard you say that you had written a job description for CMO, I believe it was, and it came back to, you. they said, too many acronyms here. No one's going to understand this. It's like, if you don't know those acronyms, then you're not right for the job, right? That's correct. That was my,
2: response to them. They're like, oh, I don't know what any of this means. And like, I don't think people are going to, I'm like, well, if they don't
1: know what those things mean, then they should not be in that role. Well, another dimension that we think about with gutsy brands is this idea of at Gut Check, we call it the power of and, and it, it means that true innovators, they see opportunities where others force trade-offs. Like you can actually have the best of both worlds if you are truly applying an innovative uh, approach to things. And one thing I love about your background is clearly you love data. I think you have a pretty decent love affair with data, but you also have incredible intuition and understand the human side of things. So can you talk to me a little bit about that intersection of data and human thinking and where in your career or where in a business life cycle do you need to lean in one way or the other?
2: Yeah, I think I, think I, I love that that both the data and ideation, parts of, of entrepreneurism, at least for me, just because I, you know, I'm, I majored in journalism and statistics, which is kind of a weird mix. But for me, it was like the, you know, it was the perfect mix for the career I ended up having. I'm also, I also think that people think that you, that it's tough to come up with new ideas for things or that you know like they don't lots of people are like oh i don't know how you come up with these ideas or how did you decide to go down this direction and one of them is i read a lot i read all the time every single day i read articles and i don't read just industry crap like i i read the new yorker and i read the atlantic and i'm reading online news and i i spend an incredible amount of time reading and then like my brain's kind of like always going like how am i going to connect these two things together and then what am i really excited and passionate about because the truth of the matter is that you're going to be most successful working in a business that you're so excited about, like that you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, oh my God, that's a great idea. And like write it down or, you know, you're having a walk out in the woods somewhere and an idea comes to you and let's write that down. I also listen to a lot of podcasts. One of my favorite bu- books that I think has really kind of helped define my entire career and some of the choices that I have made is this, it's a really, it's a small little chat book by Marcus Buckingham. And it's called The Truth About You. And it's, it's got an exercise in it, which, uh, you know, is, is super straightforward. And for a week, you write down everything that you did that you loved and everything that you did that you absolutely hated or loathed. He's British, so he uses the word loathe, which it sounds a lot better when he says it. Loathe. And I think you, most people are really surprised about what comes out of that activity. I mean, that's how I kind of landed on the idea of scale house because I realized like, oh gosh, all the startup activities kind of give me anxiety. And that's a really like, that's, that's a hard thing. I mean, I can definitely start a company, but do I enjoy that process? Not really. I I really like the scaling. I'm, you know, my nickname actually at Lieberman, which was again, my first research job was the sweeper because anytime there was a project that was a total mess, they would give it to me because they knew I was gonna dig in and fix it. Cause I really like fixing things. I'm a total fixer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, I think the more that you can, you know, the more you you gravitate toward the things that you're really excited and passionate about, and there's that intersection of like what you're good at and what you're really passionate about, the more likely you are to have success at, at a venture or a job or any anything that you're doing. And that's what I really try to focus on are, how do I, you know, if I get really interested in something, how do I, how do I, transition that idea into something where I can make money? <laughs> How does that translate into a business offering or something strategic that, where I
1: feel like there's white space too,
2: for me to come in and do something that no one else is doing?
1: Mm-hmm. I think you gave about 15 lessons in that response that I'm excited <laughs> to put into, into practice. So, and this is the part of my job that I love. I love learning from people in the industry and hearing their stories. So this is definitely on my the love side of my job today. Um, so going back to, to brands and companies you've been involved with, if we think about that idea of seeing opportunities where others force trade-offs, can you think of a founder or a brand that has really been able to do that successfully? You talked about Hum Kombucha, you talked about Argent, uh, Evelyn and Bobby. Are there other brands that you can think of that have really personified that, that aspect?
2: I think another, I think another good example too is um, I met Cindy Gallup at an event, I I can't remember six or seven years ago. uh, And she and I have become friends over time. In fact, I'm in, well, you know, I'm in Athens, Greece right now where I live part of the year and Cindy uh, and one of her friends was here this summer. So we got to spend some, some more time together, but she, you know, she launched a, a business. I can't remember how many years ago now, which was you know, a little controversial at the time for, for well, it's just controversial in general, but it was, the site is called Make Love Not Porn. And basically what it is, it is a, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it is a, a, a sex site, but it's all with real world sex with people who have decided to upload their, their videos. And it's not this kind of manufactured environment for pornography, which I think has, has really done a disservice to a whole generation, particularly of of men, uh, who have unrealistic expectations about what women's bodies look like and what sexual experiences should be like, um, which has also had, I think, a very detrimental impact on women uh, as well. And so, you know, Cindy, she is fighting the good fight. You know, she has struggled to to get that site up and to get it humming, to get investment capital, to understand banking systems which traditionally, you know, for obvious reasons, like a lot of banks won't work with, with companies that deal in porn. Uh, investors don't wanna touch anything um, that has to do with with porn. And so, you know, she's got a social good component to what she's doing that she's very, very passionate about and she's really stuck the course. And that is an incredibly hard thing to to do when you're sort of getting attacked from all sides.
1: Well, Cindy sounds like a firecracker and what I can really tell is that she's pretty brave, right? Sounds like she was fearless and pioneering a new way forward. And initiating that type of tough conversation about changing an industry with a lot of baggage, a lot of areas for improvement, I can only imagine what guts that took and what those discussions were like for her to pitch that concept and navigate the financial world to get funding. You know, I just, I love that story about that passion and we applaud that kind of gutsiness for sure. So throughout your career, you have seen the ebb and flow of insights professionals seat at the table. And I'm just curious, where do you see that seat at the table today? And where do you think the future of insights uh, role will be? I mean, I think unfortunately
2: the role of insights has been diminished greatly. And I think there's a couple different reasons for that. One is there's so much more available data now to businesses than just primary research data. And unfortunately, our industry in many ways has chosen to ignore a lot of those other data types. And so what happens is that you end up with a whole generation of researchers that only know how to work with primary research data and are not taking the time to understand behavioral data and salesforce data and all of these other ancillary data types and I think a really great example of that is Pavi Gupta. If you if you don't know Pavi Gupta, Gupta he was the head of research for Johnson & Johnson and now he's at SC Johnson, which is quite confusing because they are two totally different companies. Uh, but Pavi and I had a really interesting conversation maybe a year and a half ago where you know, we were talking about the rise of behavioral data and how he's working with with data. And he said, yeah, I was, I had done this research study and I'd done a presentation. And then after the presentation, the CMO came into my office and they were like, well, that was a great data presentation, but what about our Salesforce data? And what about this data from this behavioral data that we have? Or what about this other data type? And Pavi said, he looked at the CMO and he was like, well, I'm a researcher and i I work with primary research that's so what I do and then he said and then the CMO left and he said he sat there for a while and he realized that if he didn't if he didn't learn how to work with these other data types that he wasn't going to have a job in a couple of years. Yeah. Now, he's one of the few people that I've talked to that. Well, he's he's a good example and often uh, also um Stefan Gans at uh, at Pepsi, I think is a great example of somebody who comes more from a marketing side of things. And really understands the power of looking at multiple data sources. Uh, I think, you know, within market research, A, we have a tendency to be too singular in our data sources, and B, we also are getting unseated a lot by big consulting because we're not looking holistically at the business. We're looking at things on a project by project by project basis versus getting in more at the C-suite and having an understanding of what the overall problems or challenges or goals that a a business might face. And one of the pieces of advice that I give to to researchers now is you've really got to think like a CFO and you have to present like a CMO and we don't do enough about that. And I, I think, you know, and I would be a great example of this. As researchers, we are not traditionally trained in business finance and strategy. You know, When I started my companies, I had to learn that the hard way on the job. And it was you know, incredibly intimidating. I didn't know anything about that. I, I didn't understand why you know, what a P&L was or a balance sheet. Uh, and so I think that the savvier researchers can get about, hey, here are all the things that drive company growth. And, and what C-suite executives are looking for, the more likely we are to have that seat at the table that I think we're getting progressively less and less of at
1: this point. Mm-hmm. I really agree with that. And I think that you know, I've been in uh, so many situations where I felt like the research recommendation that was being made was very true to the hypothesis that was identified to test and what the data showed. But it wasn't grounded. The recommendation wasn't grounded in the context of the business and how they needed to make decisions and how they would measure success. And I think that the industry, we can do so much more there to really put context around our recommendations. And it starts with understanding the client's business. And I think a lot of organizations uh, don't do enough to do that, right? They enable tech, they enable speed, but they don't enable, hey, let me understand your business so I can make a recommendation that's grounded in that understanding. So I think unless we fix that, I I agree with you. I think that um, we'll see that, that role of insights diminish if we can't harness the power of all these data sources and also put our business hats on to make the right recommendations.
2: For sure. And I get a lot of excuses from research suppliers when I talk about this and they'll say, oh, well, I, I tried to have those conversations, but no one will talk to me about it. Well, okay, well then you're talking to the wrong person. Yeah. And then they'll say, well, but the person I need to talk to won't talk to me. Okay, well then you need to figure out how to fix that. How are you gonna get to that person? How are you gonna establish trust with them? How are you gonna get in and have those conversations? There's, there's too many excuses as to why we're not doing things. And I think oftentimes, of course, like we're pre-programmed to try to take the easy way. That's not unusual. I mean, I, I, I say this all the time to CEOs who, spend a lot of time working on tactical things that are frankly a, a huge waste of their time in which they could pay somebody far less to, to do it. It's just not a good use of, of their time. They should be working on strategy, but guess what? People spend an incredible amount of time working on tactics because it's a hell of a lot easier. Mm. <laughs> we, as humans, we naturally gravitate to what's easiest. I do it myself, you know, like I'd rather, you know, when I was running my businesses, yeah, I would have rather done QuickBooks, books billing like every day of the week then spend my time working on what my strategy was going to be to get to from five to 10
1: million to 10 to 20 million just yeah yeah. it's human nature we go to what we can control during times of high stress i become really fixated on formatting and powerpoint because you know (laughs) that's really worth it it's worth the time yeah Yeah. worth every penny of your time (laughs) (laughs) absolutely absolutely So we're going to go to a quick lightning round, Kristen. There are no right or wrong answers. Just keep it fun. And we'd love your point of view as a consumer for this. Um, So name the first brand or campaign that comes to mind when we think about empathy. What's one that truly, truly gets people? I really like culprit
2: underwear. And if you haven't seen their ads, they're hilarious. They have a product called Lady Boxers, which just kills me every time I see the ad for them. And if, if you're a woman
1: that's worn underwear, it'll speak to you. (laughs) I cannot wait to look that one up. I love it. Uh, What's a brand or campaign that has been really pioneering? It's created a new way of thinking or of doing business.
2: Oh, for sure. Hum Kombucha. I mean, some of their ad campaigns and how they try to connect with consumers that haven't traditionally been exposed to Kombucha, I think is is really different.
1: How about a brand or campaign that stands behind bold ideas, even if it's not popular at the time?
2: Gosh, I ha- you know I have to give another shout out to Cindy's company, Make Love Not Porn, because I think it's still an idea that's taboo and not not really popular, and she just keeps on trucking. She's mm-hmm. doing a great job.
1: And how about a brand or campaign that saw opportunity where others forced compromise?
2: Gosh, I'm just repeating a lot of the brands that I talked about earlier, but I think it's because they're top of mind. I mean, certainly Evelyn and Bobby, you know, like not compromising on having something that really looks beautiful, but also is comfortable and doesn't make you want to rip your bra off at night, which is 90% of the bras I think that women wear. And then, you know, certainly Sally, you know, like really coming
1: out with workwear that's actually practical for women and isn't designed by men. That's a good underlying theme to most of the brands you've talked about. And I, I love that. So last lightning round, this is all about you. It's called Spill Your Guts. So what's the first brand you remember as a child? Why is that memorable? Uh, It's Denny's because I,
2: (laughs) I grew up on welfare in like rural Oregon. And so because of that, we never ever went out to eat. And we had one very catastrophic camping trip where my father finally gave up and we got to go to Denny's for breakfast one day. And the reason I remember that brand is because at some point during that breakfast, somehow my stepmother managed to steal all the silverware. And so the entire rest of my childhood, we had Denny's stamped on like every, I apologize Denny's. I was not responsible for the theft, uh, but I grew up with a like full set of Denny's silverware.
1: Yeah. I love that. And I think that between Dairy Mart and Denny's, I think you've got some, uh, you know, some <laughs> something you owe out there in the world. Um, yeah. You're an avid reader, so this will be hard for you to pick, but what book or movie represents your career journey? Uh, it's
2: really funny. Uh, my my friend uh, Sinead Hassan gave me a book over the holidays called How to Fail, which I really loved because I don't think that we talk about failure enough. And I, I really try to talk about it because I want people to understand that entrepreneurism is not an easy, you know, it's not a bunch of easy wins. It's very, it's grueling, you know, and so- I love this book because it's a, it's, it's also a podcast, but it's a great book that kind of just highlights all different failures and of which I, I have a ton of, and they have a really hilarious one on dating, which I've
1: experienced myself. So (laughs) how would you describe your job to a child? Uh, I grow companies. What's one piece of advice you would give a business leader looking to help their brand be more gutsy?
2: Well, I mean, I think be bold for one, but also to ensure like you have the right players on the bus because your, your team has a network that is infinitely larger than your own. And if you can get that team to evangelize what you're doing, it's gold. Great advice.
1: What is the most used emoji on your phone?
2: It's definitely the laughing emoji with tears. Yep. I use, I use that a lot.
1: Yeah. Do you, are you a two, two or three for on that? A two, two for. Yeah. Yeah. I it mean, it's a yeah. few things I find. Yeah. Um, final question. We're compiling a Gutsy Brands playlist. So, what song would you add to it? Oh, God.
2: When, you know, I have to tell you, like, when I'm really feeling a little down or unmotivated, the one song that, like, super gets me, like, fired up is <laughs> slightly inappropriate, but it's called Work Bitch by Britney Spears. Hard like it's your
0: Watch out now, cause here it comes
2: gets me every time like it gets me really fired up and then I'm like yeah I'm gonna dig in now
1: yeah. that's awesome it will make a great addition to our car playlist so this has been fantastic Kristen I've learned so much you've given me a lot to think about not only in terms of what makes brands gutsy and what's important as you grow and scale companies but also just so many lessons learned from you as an individual so it's been a pleasure I really appreciate your time yeah thanks for having me
0: Yes, that was a very fun episode. You know, Kristen is such a staple in the market research industry, but somehow I have not actually met her before, but I've worked at a lot of the companies she's on the board for.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, same for me. I feel like we've intertwined so many times throughout our network. And, you know, she talked about being the cat with 13 lives at this point, because she really has had multiple varied experiences in the industry. And I love the perspective that she brought about marketing, about being a bold brand, keys to scaling a business and so many hilarious anecdotes along the way. I
0: I laughed a lot and learned a lot. I laughed a lot as well. And it was a good thing I was on mute because I was laughing quite a bit. I mean, she covered so many topics from bras and porn to working at or getting fired from Dairy Mart and stealing forks from Denny's. I mean, what a great story. So I realized in recording
1: this and then telling a couple of friends about it since then that I think everyone has a Denny's story. So I think we should actually make that one of our rapid fire questions. So tell me your, your done story, but. um, (laughs) Everybody has one. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But she's just so authentic in how she assesses what businesses do well, what they could do differently. I think there were multiple lessons I heard that I know I'll be putting into
0: practice and, you know, yet again, more brands and more books that I'll be checking out. Definitely. And speaking of recommendations from her, my by far, my favorite song on our Spotify list is Britney's Work Bitch. It is my go-to pump-up jam when I'm at the gym, when I'm getting ready in Vegas. I put it on. It is a feminist anthem. So I think it was very fitting for this episode because Kristen really advocates for women in leadership. Yeah, she does. And what I really value
1: in her perspective on women in leadership is that it's not a romanticized story. It's not a rally cry. It just makes business sense to have women in more varied and more senior jobs. And to me, there's a really strong tie to empathy. You know, if you think about it, perhaps there's not as much empathy in the investment community for things that are not well understood. You know, we heard. From Kristen, as well as other podcasts, interviews that we've done, that because the investment community is primarily male, they can sometimes miss the market opportunity because they don't experience or appreciate the need, right? So not understanding how uncomfortable a bra can be, or that women actually do want pockets in their work, workwear, like just they don't quite get it. And so they miss that connection. And so if the investment community can show more empathy for the human need that is driving these innovative solutions, they might better be able to spot these highly profitable growth areas. And the more women we can get in that investment community, the more naturally that empathy will come. So I don't know, Kristen, in my observation, she's focused on action and solutions that help drive more
0: women in leadership positions. And I find that really inspiring. Okay. So it's that time again. What Are our key takeaways today? Well, I
1: think first for me is that there were so many lessons in her experience in launching her own startup, right? So that was Otx. It brought research online for the entertainment industry um, decades ago, and she was tackling an audience that was really risk averse. These studio executives, you know, their performance is very visible, so they really can't risk making the wrong decisions. And taking their research approach and converting it online was a huge shift. So building credibility, demonstrating confidence, it was so critical, especially as the category leader was being pretty vocal and trying to diminish the quality of of online tools. So I just love how she talked about the grit that that took, you know, shouldering the the pressure of so many people depending on you, all the late nights, all sort of the personal trade-offs she had to make to launch that business. I, I think we can learn a lot from that story, as well as her commentary about, how critical the team component is like the team that launches is not always the team that can help you scale and recognizing that those can be very different profiles
0: i just thought it was extremely helpful to hear it. that was a really good insight and you know you mentioned earlier that she's very authentic and i think she's vulnerable when she talks about what it takes to actually grow a business and i thought that was really cool to to hear that from someone who we look up to in this industry to hear how vulnerable she can be about that
1: yeah, yeah.
0: She was so authentic about it.
1: And another place that I saw just what we would really call it, you know, DNA of a gutsy brand, and this is in pioneering a new path, make love not form. I mean, this whole idea, it, it respects society's desire to share sexual experiences. And it doesn't say that pornography is a bad thing, but that how can we, we reframe that that context in a way that's safe, it's educational, it sets more realistic expectations, it helps you know, raise a generation of, of adults that can have healthy thoughts and, you know, expectations for, for sexual experiences. So I thought there was so much to that story. I mean, I cannot wait to meet <laughs> that founder and have a conversation with her, but talk about like, you know, no fear bucking the system. I'm just going to go and totally recreate an industry that's been around for quite some time. Um, and has a lot of stigma to it. I mean, so many components there of gutsiness. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it
0: was impressive, actually. And, you know, it is such a hush-hush topic that people are like, oh, don't talk about that. But it's a multi-billion dollar industry. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. Why not make it safer and healthier for all of us? So I think that was really cool. And, you know, everyone's going to have a lot of fun looking that up. Don't do it on your work computer. (laughs) It's a great TED talk, though. So I highly recommend it. And then another
1: piece, another brand she talked about that was really cool was Hum Kombucha. And I see that brand as an example of standing behind a bold idea because with their kombucha offering, they're targeting soda drinkers, right? They're not targeting the people that are already shopping the natural channel and already willing to, you know, pay a premium for a product that they probably understand the benefits of. They're trying to target, um, you know, the the soda drinker and, and convert them. So that takes a lot of education. A lot of positioning exploration, how can we describe the taste and the benefits in a way that will resonate with, with people. And so I see that as you know having the conviction to um, stand behind a new product offering in a way that will hopefully appeal to a broader audience. and it sounds like they you know have had great success so far.
0: And it, it helps that they're really tasty. They have good flavors. Oh, you've tried them. I have. yeah, they're a big in our in our area. Okay,
1: good. It's definitely next on my list. I feel like I just end up with a long list of shopping <laughs> and listening options with these podcast guests. They're just they're give us great ideas. I think when we talk about empathy being a component of gutsy brands, Evelyn and Bobby sounds like the coolest bra brand ever. And so I I just was really, you know, touched by the fact that this founder had experienced this physical misery, right? Being a more full, full busted uh, woman and having, you know, to deal with the discomfort of everyday bras that are designed by men. And that's all about empathy. It's about understanding there's other humans like me that have this need and how cool to be the first woman to have a bra patent. I mean, that's brava to her, Um, but it's grounded in empathy. It's grounded in, you know, a, a deep connection with humans that, want a different experience that's going to make their lives better. So I loved that one,
0: that example that she gave. Having a bunch of friends who have that problem, it's great to see it solved, especially with the price point. I think people don't really think about the cost for specialty bras. So having something that's more accessible and with a wider range is really fantastic. And I can't believe it took that long. (laughs) Exactly. Like here we are in 2022. So, you know, we're getting things done.
1: And I think the other component that she talked about that aligns to an aspect of gutsy brand is this idea of the power of and, which at Gut Check, we refer to as seeing opportunity where others force trade-offs. And to me, it is a best of both worlds type of idea. She talked about how today's professional, you need to present like a CMO, but think like a CFO, right? You have to be able to look at multiple data sources and weave it together to tell a story that's going to impact the business. You have to have a love for data and for ideation. I just think that is so true. And I think that some of the most successful brands and people that I see in the marketplace and in our business and in our client's business, they really embody that power of and. And I thought she talked about that in a way that I found very memorable. Absolutely.
0: That's the gut check way, right? You want logic and creativity and why can't you have both?
1: So in reflecting on this episode with Kristen, I'm just grateful to have another leader focused on growth and she talked to us about what it takes to have guts, have conviction, have the smarts to scale a business. I hope our listeners learned as much as I did from Kristen. And don't forget, just like the security door at Dairy Mart, stay until the job is done.